Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. Chapter 3, I'm not going to read a text, but I want us to look at probably the first 14 verses of this particular chapter, however much of that we have time for. You may very well remember the creation story of God created the world, and then his final act of creation was that of creating Adam. Then from his side, he took a rib, according to our Bible, and made a woman. Placed these two perfect people in the beautiful garden of Eden. Instructed them to there, take care of it, and so on. State of innocence, state of perfection. Never a sin had been committed, no thoughts of evil. None of those things had ever transpired. Don't you wish that we still had it today? The good thing is the day is coming when we'll have it again. When there is a new world that's developed out of this old one, that's remade and remolded. That's not the story for this morning. Into this beautiful garden, this state of innocence, these two people, Adam and Eve, and then one of the animals created of the serpent here in the first verse of the third chapter, had a conversation with Eve. You will notice in the very first verse that this serpent was more subtle, that is, he was more cunning, more conniving than any of the other creatures that God had made and placed in this garden. And this serpent and Eve have a conversation. Never strike you as strange that Eve is talking to a snake. And it didn't seem to bother her one bit. There is no indication of surprise that the snake would say anything to her. And the conversation they had appears in all that we can see here to be a normal conversation. As if she's not a bit surprised. I think probably that was exactly true. It was very possible for the human beings that were created in the animal world to have a, a conversation with each other in some fashion. And will again, I think, someday. But let us look at it. The serpent we know now is Satan in the body of the snake, said to the woman, Yea, has God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? In other words, did he really say that? Really? Did he really say that? Lots of times we are mistaken as to what God really did say. 
what we think he said. And so the serpent, Satan, begins the question of doubt in the mind of Eve, and she begins to consider just what God really did say to them about eating of the fruit of a certain tree that was in the garden. God said one thing, and Satan says, oh, he really didn't mean that, surely. It begins in our own minds and our own hearts to begin casting doubt as to what the truth really is. That's the beginning of deception when we begin to doubt it. When somebody or something, and through the influence certainly of Satan, we find our minds beginning to question whether God really said what somebody said he did. Whether the Bible is actually true, is this really God's word? Or as a secretary of mine several years ago used to say, this is nothing more than a bunch of made-up stuff that some men got together and wrote, and it doesn't mean anything. Was it? This God's word. So the question was there, and the doubt was there, and uh, Eve responded in verse 2, and said, uh, and the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, that is in the middle of the garden, God has said, he shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did God say all of that? If he did, we have no recording of it, because when God made his statement to Eve back in the second chapter, verses 16 and 17, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. But there's no statement there about touching it. So Eve has somewhat misinterpreted or added to what God really said. If he said it, it is not recorded there in the initial record given to, to Adam. But they were to abstain from eating of a particular tree on the penalty of death. That was God's law. And the serpent in births says to the woman, ye shall not surely die. Do you really think that God is going to kill you if you eat from that one tree amongst all of those trees in the garden? The first lie. Let's question God's statement. I was teaching Sunday school class several years ago in which a pastor's wife from another denomination was sitting in the class. We were talking about hell in some way or other. I've forgotten the exact context now, but I remember her response. She said, God won't send anybody to hell. That's not his nature. Did God really say in the event 
that you eat of that tree, you will die? Satan comes along and says, God, ah, now come on. You know better than that. Think a little bit. Be reasonable. Do you really think God will send somebody to hell for disobedience? Well, that's what the scripture says. Is it God's word? But people want to grasp onto the lie and say it does not seem reasonable nor rational that God would create a man and place him in the world and then kill him if he isn't obedient. But God made a way by which a person could escape that penalty, but the penalty remains, and he has not altered his law, which he provided. automatically know. 
as surely as they took the fruit they were going to know. I am convinced that man and woman, boy and girl, once reaching the age of capability to reason, knows the difference between right and wrong. We inherently know the difference. James chapter 4 verse 17 says, He that knows the good does it not commit his sin. There's a whole sermon of that, but I simply want to emphasize the fact he who knows the good. If you have any kind of capability to reason, everyone knows to the good. not the need to convince people that unless there is a change in their pattern, in their way, in their method of living, unless they adhere to something beyond themselves as a supreme being in their life, they're doomed. That doesn't have to be taught. One does not have to have the Bible to know that there's a God. One does not have to come to church to understand him. It is within him to have the capability in his own reason to comprehend. He knows the difference. He says in verse 6, scripture says, and the woman, she listened to all of this, and she looked at three things. She served, first of all, Saul's was good for food. Something good to eat will turn everybody's attention. Secondly, it was pretty. Oh, what a beautiful fruit is on that tree. And thirdly, you know, maybe if I eat it, I will be smart as God. And I like that. All the appeal was there. Good for food, pleasant to look at, and really, it was going to do something for her. You put those three things into your life or into mine, and we have temptations staring us right in the face. Something beautiful will turn our eyes to look at it and gaze about it and watch it. Something that will satisfy our eyes is tremendously appealing. Something that will satisfy the gratification of our body, all encompassed here, and something good, good to eat. And then if we thought that we would get the upper hand, we'll go for it. Temptation is there. Our responsibility is not yield. That's the hard part, but we take it so lightly in believing that, well, I just can't help it. I'm too weak. I just can't avoid this or that or the other. I can't keep those thoughts out of my mind. 
to go there, but all of a sudden in my weakness, I discover I'm there. You understand, after all, I'm only human. Aren't those things that we say? The real reason that we do not resist temptation is that we want to yield to temptation. And we will find every excuse under the sun to give us a reason why we ought Yes, of course, there's nobody in this congregation except me that has problems with overeating. I'll use that as an illustration. Let me tell you, you put a pretty cake down there on the table with fine stuff on it. It looks a whole lot better than what I eat. And I can't resist getting just a little bit of fright off of there. And if that tastes too good, it means two bites. And the first thing you know, I've eaten a whole piece. And then I say, oh, there we You mean to tell me that I am so weak in my will that I can't possibly resist that German chocolate cake with all the goodies on it? You and I both know that we all have within us a will that tells us that we can exercise that will to control our appetites, and we can't possibly uh, use that as an excuse to say, well, you know, I'm just weak when it comes to German chocolate cake, and I just can't help myself. And we all know that that's nonsense. He could have resisted eating off the tree. But she thought she was going to gain some things from it that would be advantageous to her. And so she listened to the serpent. Why do people listen to bad instead of good? Why do we tell awful things instead of good things? Why if somebody says it's bad for you, oh goody, let me have some of it. And if somebody says it's good for you, we should. My kids, when I hand them the spoon with good stuff on it for uh, their sickness, I don't ever shake their head. I don't like it before they ever got the taste of it. That's nature. It seems. But look what she did. She not only ate of it, but she gave it to her husband. Now listen. Almost never, I'll use that phrase because I'm not real positive and I can make it 100%, but almost never does a person sin back in. Somebody else will be involved. And the sin that we commit that reaches out and involves somebody else suddenly has compounded the sin until we now have involved another person and another person and another person. And where does this thing stop? She gave it to her husband and he did eat. The question is, was she responsible for his eating? You bet she was responsible. That doesn't mean that he was not responsible. He certainly had a will of his own and a good sense to eat. Look, that's wrong. God said we shall not eat of it, and I'm not going to do it. But you know how these women are. They can just twist us and in around their fingers and we'll just do anything they say. Another one of those lame excuses. You need to tell me you don't have a will of your own. Are you responsible for the person who participates with you? Am I responsible for the person who participates with me in disobeying God's will? You bet. Do 
there were two brothers born to this family, Cain and Abel. Abel was righteous, Cain was unrighteous, and Cain killed his brother Abel and hit him in the ground, and God came looking for him on one occasion and said to him, where is your brother? And Cain said, how should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? And God's response was very emphatic, what have you done? In other words, putting into the text that I wrote this morning, yes, indeed, you're responsible. I ask you, where is he? You are responsible for telling me where he is. What you have done makes you responsible. Do not ever assume that you can sin and it doesn't hurt somebody. That excuse is given over and over. Well, I may be doing wrong, but I'm not hurting anybody, just myself. Listen, it almost never happens that the person who becomes an alcoholic and drinks too much does that alone, or does drugs alone, or lies alone, or is immoral alone, or steals alone, or does all the other things alone. There's somebody else that's being affected by what one does. And so now there are two people who have disobeyed God. What do they try to do? Well, they first of all looked at each other and suddenly they discovered, why goodness sakes, we're naked. We don't have any clothes on. In that way, obviously, we've been created and never noticed the difference. The thing that God said to them had come about. You're going to know the difference. You know the difference. And so what did they do? They got some fig leaves and sewed them together because they were ashamed of themselves. They first of all tried to hide their sin, their nakedness from each other. Well, that wasn't working too well. They knew what they had done. Then, in the evening time, God comes walking down the road in the garden and calls for Adam, and he can't find Adam, because Adam is over behind the bushes hiding. He'd never done that before. Why is he hiding? Because he knew that he was naked. He knew that he had sinned, and he could not stand in the presence of God in that condition. Willingly, at least. Nobody will willingly stand in the presence of God in his sin until he is ready to confess his sin. We will hide somewhere. We will put out all kinds of protection. There's not a one of us that knows each other intimately this morning. There is something about you and something about me and cross the aisles that we really do not know about each other. We are only revealing what we want each other to know. And we can cover up those things by looking nice and dressing nice and acting nice. But when you get behind the scenes out of the normal circumstances and see a person for what he really is, then you begin to see the flaws. All you have to do you discover that you really don't know somebody is to get married. And that person you thought you knew well during those early baby days suddenly became a stranger to you. You didn't know that he threw his socks on the floor and you didn't know that she could cook too well. Those things were taken for granted. We don't know each other. Go on a long trip with somebody and you'll find out that you don't know them well at all. I've taken a few trips with some people and stayed for a week or so. Oh, discovered, goodness sakes, I'm not going to make that uh, uh, trip again because I really didn't know that guy. He slurred in that other bed over there in the motel room. So it goes. Where are you, Adam? Adam finally steps out and says, Well, 
I was hiding. Why? Well, I knew I was naked. I told you. Adam, did you eat of that tree? I told you not to eat of Well, you see, that woman.
Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at james.sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.